And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Belita. Let's, um, again, real quickly pray and uh, ask God to help us understand this part of the word well together this morning. Please pray with me. Father, we come now and pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you have for us in the scripture. We pray that you would be at work right now speaking your truth to us through this ancient story of Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. So as I mentioned, we've been making our way through Mark's gospel, and we're coming up to the final few chapters. And last week, we saw that Jesus took on a number of really difficult questions from various religious groups of his day, the, Fad the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and we compared Jesus, as it were, to a, to a baseball player who is in the batter's box and People are trying to strike him out. They're throwing their hardest fastball. They're throwing their meanest slider. And they're doing everything they can to strike Jesus out. But they can't strike Jesus out. It's impossible. Jesus hits every one of their pitches out of the park. They can't stump him. They can't trap him in his words. And as this has been going on, Jesus in Jerusalem has been dealing with threats from the religious leaders, from threats from the Romans, and also from the dim-witted disciples that he's seeking to lead and to train in the kingdom of God. And all the while, the tension in the story is mounting. The conflict is being heightened as Jesus, in just a few days, is going to be arrested and dragged through the city outside and crucified on a tree, on a cross in the most shameful way imaginable. But before that's happening, we can see that the conflict is mounting. And Mark has recorded these interactions in his gospel because he wants you and he wants me to be able to see together the wisdom and the authority of Jesus. He wants us to be able to marvel at Jesus, just like the people in the story a couple of thousand years ago marveled at Jesus. He wants us to be able to trust Jesus, to place our allegiance in Jesus. And so in our story this morning, we see that others have seen the wisdom and the authority of Jesus. That's what instigates our entire story to get today. A man who's called by Mark as a scribe approaches Jesus. We see there in verse 28 because he's so impressed, again, at how wisely 
Jesus has fielded the questions of the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees. Now remember, these people who were asking Jesus questions last week weren't asking him honest questions. They weren't honest seekers or skeptics. They simply want to trap Jesus in his words, Mark tells us, to get him into trouble. But this man approaches Jesus, this scribe, and as far as we can tell, asks Jesus a question that is straight from the bottom of his heart. It is honest. It's genuine in its intent. And I think that we can say that because Jesus answers this scribe very forthrightly, honestly, and directly. And the answer that Jesus gives and the further conversations that he has with this unnamed scribe I want you to see this morning, they give us a window really into the very heart of God. They give us a window into the very heart of God. So let's see, just for a few minutes together this morning, what God, the Holy Spirit, is going to reveal to us today as we study God's word together and as we ask him to give us illumination and understanding. So here's a way to sum up the whole story, okay? One big point for you. Jesus tells us what the greatest commandment is so that we can see how far away we are from keeping it and run to him for help. Okay, let me repeat that. Jesus tells us what the greatest commandment is, so we can see how far away we are from keeping it and run to him for help. So three big ideas, or that's the big idea, three points this morning as we move through this story together. The sum of the law, the problem of the law, and the purpose of the law. Sum Problem, purpose. So let's go. First point, the sum of the law. This man comes to Jesus, verse 28, and he asks a question about God's commandments or God's law. He says, which is the greatest or the most important commandment of all? Now, this guy's a theologian. He's probably had many debates on this very subject with other people of his ilk, and he might have been expecting a certain answer. It's not perhaps a question that we might ask or debate quite as often as an ancient Jewish theologian would have asked or debated. Perhaps we wouldn't frame it in the same way either. We might frame the question like this. How can I please God? Or um, even more broadly, what am I here for? What does God want me to do? You know, really, it's one of the key questions of life. And Jesus answers this man's question, how can I please God? What does God want me to do? What is the purpose of my existence? What's the most important thing God wants for me? Jesus answers his question very clearly and very directly. Look at what he says. He first quotes from the Old Testament, one of the most famous verses in the Old Testament that Jewish people both then and now recite day in and day out. He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is known as the Shema. If you have Jewish friends or if you come from a Jewish background, you've undoubtedly heard that before. It's called the Shema because the Hebrew word Shema is translated to hear, which is the first word of this sentence. It comes from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. And Jesus quotes it here to show us and to show the scribe that God, the King, the Lord, is unique. He is distinct. He is set apart. He is the only God. He is the only one worthy of our worship, the only one worthy of our allegiance. He and he alone is the Lord. And so, because of this, 
because of who God is, the main purpose of our existence, the reason that you and me are on this planet is to live for and to love this one king, this God of the universe. Jesus says that the main commandment, the sum of the law, is to love. To love the Lord your God, verse 30, with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And then secondly, to love your neighbor as yourself. Let's talk about that a little further. Think about it like this again. You can't be more expansive than this idea. The entire purpose for each of our lives is to love. It's to love God. The entire direction of your life is to be pointed at all times and in every way in a Godward direction. You exist according to the Christian scriptures to love God. Look at what Jesus says. The sum of the law is to love him with all of who we are, all of the time. We exist to love him fully, to love him completely, to love him totally, to love him constantly. Look at the repetition there of the word all in verse 40, four times. Love him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Everything that we do, that we say, that we think, that we purpose, that we act upon, that we feel should be towards the great purpose of loving God. That is the reason humanity exists, according to Jesus of Nazareth. Now, it's worth saying at this point that whatever you love the most is inevitably what constitutes your identity and purpose. It orients your entire life. That, by the way, is why the Bible says here that it's love for God that is the sum of the law. Notice, Jesus doesn't say it's respect for God. He doesn't say it's honor of God. He doesn't say it's obedience to God or even knowledge of God that is the sum of the law. He says it is to love God. And the reason that Jesus says that in part is because humans cannot help but to love. You can't not love. Your love is always directed to someone or to something, and the thing or person that you love the most is what orients and shapes the form of the rest of your life. The theologian Jamie Smith writes this, To be human is to be a creature whose orientation and form of life is most shaped by what one loves as ultimate. So what Jesus is saying is that loving God is not just having emotionally heavy feelings for him, and it's not just seeking a greater knowledge or understanding of him. Rather, loving God is orienting and forming your entire existence around him first and foremost. Love God with everything all the time, 100%. Secondly, he says the sum of the law is to love your neighbor as yourself. Do you see that there in verse 31? And notice, again, he's quoting from the Old Testament here and making the major point that loving God and loving neighbor are inseparable commandments. That is, you cannot do one and not do the other. 
you can't claim to love God and yet hate your neighbor, right? You cannot love God without a consequent love for other people. We see this all over the Bible. Our men's Bible study this week talked about 1 John chapter 2. 1 John 2, 9 says this, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. So one inescapable and inevitable sign of a genuine love for God is a genuine love for other people made in the image of God. Now the natural question that arises when we read that commandment from the Lord Jesus is, well, who is my neighbor, right? Who is my neighbor? Well, in the Bible, your neighbor very clearly and very straightforwardly is anyone who lives in a certain proximity of your life. So your closest neighbors are your family, for example, the people that you share a home or a dwelling with. But we will also have neighbors whom we are called to love that we might not like. They might still be in your home, by the way. Um, You might not like them, and they might not like you. And yet Jesus says here that we are to love our neighbor even and especially when that neighbor is not someone that our affections naturally bend towards. That's the whole point of one of the most famous stories that Jesus tells in the Bible, right? The parable of the Good Samaritan. You can't have two more different people than the Samaritan and the man whom he helps along the side of the road. These are two people, the Samaritan and the Jew, who are supposed to hate one another. They are mortal and bitter enemies, arch rivals. And yet Jesus' whole point is that your neighbor is not, whoever your neighbor is is not dependent on who you want to be your neighbor or who you like having as your neighbor. The person who is your neighbor is the person who is close to you. And so Jesus sums up the law very clearly here, doesn't he? He says that the way to think about all of God's commandments towards us, the way to think about our entire existence is in these two very straightforward commands. We are to love God with everything, and we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. So secondly, let's think about the problem of the law. We see the sum of it. What's the problem of it? Well, that's probably clear to you. It's certainly implicit in this text. The problem is what Jesus wanted this scribe to see and to understand. And the scribe almost gets there. Notice Jesus says, you're very near. You're close to the kingdom of God. You're not far. He wants us to understand the problem of the law. Here's the problem of the law. Are you ready? The problem of the law is that none of us keeps it. Okay? Not a single one of us even comes close to loving the Lord our God with all, all of our hearts and souls and minds and strength. None of us even begin in some ways to orient and frame our entire existence around the Lord. None of us loves our neighbor all the time fully as ourselves. The problem of the law is that it's the standard it places upon us is one that we cannot even come close to keeping. The standard it places on us is one we can't come close to keeping. The scriptures talk about this all the time. If you're not familiar with the Bible and you begin to read it, then that's one of the first things you'll notice about people. It's that we can't do and don't do what God calls us to do, and therefore our lives are wrecked. Paul and Romans chapter 3 says this, None is righteous. No, not one. 
no one seeks for God. The Bible is very, very clear that God gives us this great commandment. Love God with everything. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that we proceed to not do that. To not obey it. Now it's worth thinking about that a a little bit further. Let Let me try and put it this way for you this morning, okay? The problem in your life is not that you don't love. We just said that, right? You can't not love. The problem in your life is not that you don't love. The problem is that your love is disordered. You orient and center your life around things or people that you think or wish would fill your heart and return your love, but no person and no thing can ever do that adequately. The great problem that we as humans have is that our love is misplaced. So because our love is misplaced and disordered, anything in our life that we love more than the living God, which doesn't return what we hope it will return, leads us to frustration and sorrow and fear and hopelessness. Now, There's a lot of ways to think about this, but I want to illustrate it by talking about a book called Love in the Ruins by the great 20th century novelist Walker Percy. If you're not familiar with Walker Percy, I recommend him. He's great. He recounts this truth that we all love, but the problem is our loves are disordered. He recounts that truth in all of his stories, but in the book Love in the Ruins, he tells it so well. That book is about a man named Thomas More. And uh, Thomas More describes himself in the book like this. Listen. I believe in God. Notice he says, I believe in God and the whole business, but I love women best. And music and science next. Whiskey next. God fourth. And my fellow man hardly at all. I I believe in God and the whole business, but I love, notice, I love women and music and whiskey and then maybe God and my fellow man, eh, not really. And throughout the story, Walker Percy draws out how Moore's disordered loves lead to a very disordered life, which Moore himself recognizes in the story more than anyone else, but it doesn't stop him from loving these other things. And the reason is because he can't stop loving. You can't not love things. And at the culminating point in the story, Moore finds himself in in an insane asylum. He's in the loony bin, right? And this is a guy that loves gin and tonics, even though he's allergic to them. But he won't stop drinking them, even though he knows what it's going to do to him. He knows it's going to bring him pain and frustration. And so he's in the insane asylum in his first night, and he's been drinking gin and tonics. And so his eyes are all swelled up because he has an allergic reaction to gin and tonics. And he can't stop indulging himself. So instead, he's suffering from all the swelling that the gin brings. And at one point, he reflects to this complete stranger sitting next to him in the insane asylum. And he says this, My eyes are almost swelled shut. Breath whistles in my throat. But my heart is full of love. Love of what? He asks himself. Women is the reply. Which women? All women. Then the madman looked at me and said, not knowing me from Adam, you know what your trouble is? You don't love God, you love women. 
The novel's entire point really can be summarized in this sentence from Moore at the end of the book. Here's what he says. The first thing a man remembers is longing. And the last thing he is conscious of before death is exactly the same longing. At what age does a man get over his longing? The answer is he doesn't. The answer is he doesn't. You see, the point that Percy is making is, I think, a very biblical point. What he's saying is that we all have longings. We all have loves. These are inescapably human. Our problem is that our longings and our love is misplaced. We don't look to God as the one who can meet our desire for love and longing. And so as the great theologian Augustine said, our hearts are restless. Our hearts are restless. And so furthermore, because our longings are misplaced, because we love the wrong things too much, not only do we not love God with everything, but we don't love our neighbor as ourselves either. Because our loves are misordered, instead of loving our neighbor as ourselves, we use our neighbors for ourselves. Instead of loving our neighbor as ourselves, we use our neighbors for ourselves. How does that work out? Let me give you just a couple of examples. If your ultimate love, is the th- if the thing that you long for the most is, say, your reputation, you want to be known as a certain type of individual, then you are willing, at the end of the day, to a certain extent, to deceive your neighbor, to gossip about them, to make yourself look better, etc., right? Another example. If your ultimate love is your own pleasure and enjoyment then your neighbor becomes just another vessel for you to use for that purpose. That, by the way, is the essence of pornography. Pornography is not looking at someone and seeing them as made in God's image, worthy of love and belonging, but looking at someone as an object to use for your own pleasure. Another example, if your ultimate love is money, then you cannot really treat your employees or employers honorably and work as unto the Lord because those people ultimately are just roadblocks to your achieving what you think will bring you lasting happiness, which is more money. If your ultimate love is your family rather than God, and notice none of these are bad things to love. What becomes bad is when we love them ultimately. If you love your family ultimately and not God, you know what you're doing? You're doing a lot of things, but one thing you're undoubtedly doing is placing expectations on them that they can never meet. Only God can meet the expectations of our ultimate love. And so because you're placing expectations on them that they can never meet, the relationship to some degree is going to end up in bitterness and discontentment and breakdown. You see how these things are connected. We fail to keep the law to love God and to love neighbor, and so our life to some degree or another, is fractured. It's ruptured. It's it's chaotic. It's corrupt. It's broken. That's what Jesus wants this scribe to see, and that's what Jesus wants us to see today. But Jesus doesn't leave us there. He ends by pointing us to a solution, to healing, so to speak. So let's look at how that might happen, finally and briefly. 
The sum of the law, the problem of the law, now thirdly, the purpose of the law. Jesus makes clear these first thing. The first thing is to love God and to love neighbor. He makes clear by implication, and the rest of the scripture makes clear, that we don't do that, we can't do that, and so our lives are devastated. And yet also, Jesus makes clear what the purpose of the law is. Listen, I want you to hear this. If there's nothing else you hear, listen to this, okay? The purpose of God giving you commandments... The purpose of the law is not just for you to see how far... Let me me start over. The, The purpose of the law ultimately is for you to see how far short you fall of keeping it and then to look somewhere outside of yourself for help. God gives you commandments not because he knows you're going to keep them perfectly. God gives you commandments knowing that you can't keep them, that you can't love him the most so that you will come to the end of yourself and look to God for help. That's what Jesus is getting at here in the final thing he says to this scribe. The scribe agrees with Jesus in verse 32 and 33. He sees the importance of God's commandments and the summary of them. He says, well spoken, Jesus, right? He recognizes that Jesus is a great rabbi. This guy is a good teacher. He is a great uh, purveyor of the scriptures. But for this man, he is nothing more than that, you see. This scribe isn't, he's not self-reflective of his own position under the law that he has just asked Jesus about. And so Jesus sends him away with with this sort of leading comment. You are not far. You're not far from the kingdom of God. Now, what could that have meant to this guy? Remember, this is a religious guy. This guy's got a PhD in theology. Surely he thinks if anybody is in, he is in the kingdom. And this great teacher, Jesus, says, you're not in, but you're not far. Why? Because Jesus wants this man to not just see the sum of the law, but to see the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is to show us that we can't keep it. The purpose of the law is for us to see Jesus not just as a teacher and a rabbi like this man did, but to see Jesus as a savior. The purpose of the law is to get us to stop looking to ourselves and to start looking to him. And so when you look to Jesus, what is it that you should see? Let me finish with this, okay? We should see that Jesus succeeds where we fail. He keeps the law. Perfectly, He orients his entire life around loving God fully. He is perfectly righteous. He does these things that we can't do. And he gives us the righteousness that he earns in his life for free. And then he also takes on himself our unrighteousness, our failures, our law-breaking, our guilt. That's what's happening in the death of Jesus. You see, in the death of Jesus, he is dying for your misplaced love and affections. He is dying for the reality that because you love other things and other people more than God, your life is a mess. Jesus is taking the guilt and the weight and the shame and the pain of the results of your misplaced loves on himself in the cross. And he's giving us on the cross all of his perfect obedience, righteousness, and well-placed love towards God the Father. You see, Jesus gives us his obedience and takes our disobedience. The law drives us to look to someone other than ourselves because we know we can't keep it. The law drives us to look at Jesus 
as the one who does for us for free what we can't do for ourselves and then gives us what we could never earn and takes what we deserve. You see, what Jesus is doing for this scribe and what Jesus is doing for us is asking us if we can see not just the sum of the law, but the purpose of the law. Jesus is asking you right now through the Holy Spirit, can you see how you have not loved God fully? Do you believe that about yourself? Can you see how you do not love your neighbor as yourself? Can you see the troubles and the difficulties that that causes you internally and in relationships? Can you see, furthermore, Jesus as the one who did what you don't do and forgives you for the sins that you do commit? When you can see and believe in those things, in Jesus as your Savior and not just your teacher, you're not just near the kingdom, you're in the kingdom. And once you're in the kingdom by faith, you can never, ever get out by God's grace. Let's pray.